We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, acceptance of one another, and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, the right of conscience, and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. The goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. These are our seven principles. I love our principles. You know, whenever I explain Unitarian Universalism to folks, I start by talking about how we're non-creedal, meaning folks can choose the theology that best suits their heart and mind. That usually leads to a question about how we can possibly function together as a faith if we don't all believe the same thing. That's when I say, hey, Unitarian Universalism is not a free-for-all. The thing that holds us together is our covenant with the seven principles. The principles aren't theological beliefs, they're values. We can have differences of opinion about how to interpret them and use them, but accepting the basic set of seven is non-negotiable. It is our covenant, our agreement with each other. Now, the importance of, of being able to express a set of shared core beliefs is well described by the Reverend Eugene Pickett when he became president of the UUA in 1979. Referring to the problems facing the denomination, for example, his predecessor had died after less than two years in office, Pickett said, the deeper malaise lies in our confusion as to what word we have to spread. The old watchwords of liberalism, freedom, reason, tolerance, worthy though they may be, are simply not catching the imagination of the contemporary world. They describe a process for approaching religious deaths, but they testify to no intimate acquaintance with the depth themselves. If we are ever to speak to a new age, we must supplement our seeking with some profound religious finds. When the Universalist Church of America and the American Unitarian Association merged in 1961, they agreed on six principles. And there are elements of, from those principles that show up in our current principles. Like they have one that says to affirm, defend and promote the supreme worth of every human personality, the dignity of man, and the use of the democratic method in human relationships. There's also a lot of sexist language, like what you just heard, and also like talking about things like the ideals of brotherhood. Well, in 1984, the General Assembly of the UUA approved an updated set of the seven principles, and they added the six sources. Now, naming the wide variety of texts and traditions that we draw on as Unitarian Universalists was important because that's the place that really embraces our theological diversity, where we talk about Jewish and Christian teachings and humanist teachings and earth-centered traditions and more. You know, by the way, how many folks were aware that the sources got a small but important alteration in 2017? 
I'm talking about the source that used to go, words and deeds of prophetic women and men, which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. So in response to our deepening understanding that binary gender language, simple male-female language, includes some of, ex excludes some of our beloved congregants, the source now reads, words and deeds of prophetic people, which challenge us. It's a reminder that Unitarian Universalism is a living tradition. And what I mean by that is that our, as our understanding grows, as our spiritual awareness grows, we improve our faith to include that. So anyways, the 1984 principles removed the sexist language, and I want to acknowledge the work of the many UU women who agitated to make that happen. And the seventh principle was also added as a reflection of growing concern for the environment. So these principles are codified in the bylaws of the Unitarian Universalist Association. They are literally part of the rules that the UUA governs itself by. Specifically, they appear in Article 2 of the bylaws, and I'll talk more about that later. The important thing to remember is that the principles of Unitarian Universalism provide all the Unitarian Universalist congregations with the same North Star for our life together as UUs in company, in community with one another. The principles don't tell us what to believe. They tell us how we should be. Now, folks may be aware that there is an effort underway in Unitarian Universalism to add another principle, an eighth principle. How did this come to be? There's a woman named Paula Cole Jones, who at one point, was the director of racial and social justice in the Joseph Priestley district in the UUA. And the Joseph Priestley district was in the mid-Atlantic, used to be, but it was blended into the larger Central East regional group as part of regionalization. She developed the idea of the existence of two different paradigms within UU circles. On the one hand, the seven principles. On the other hand, this idea of beloved community or deep multiculturalism. After working with congregations on these issues for 15 years, she realized that a person can believe that they are being a good Unitarian Universalist and following the seven principles without really thinking about or dealing with racism and other oppressions at the systemic level. Let's be real, most UU congregations, including this church, are primarily European American in membership and in culture and in leadership. This happens even when a congregation is located within majority non-white communities. Paula Cole Jones realized that an eighth principle was needed to address this congregation level issue. So she worked with a person named Bruce Pollock Johnson to decide what components should be in it. And Bruce put together their initial draft in 2013, and the two of them worked with a group of anti-racist activists to refine it into what has become this eight, proposed eighth principle. Let me share the language with you. We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote journeying towards spiritual wholeness 
by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably, accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. Now, I'll talk more about what this proposed principle means, but first I wanna talk about the process that, that's going on to see if this will become an actual principle. So at the denominational level, the UUA has charged the Article II Study Commission, there's a commission, with reviewing and possibly revising the seven principles listed in the bylaws. And they've asked the commission to make a proposal back to the UUA board in January of 2023. Now remember, Article II is the part of our bylaws that name our principles. The language of the charge from the board of the UUA is inspiring, and I wanna share one part that I really loved. We therefore charge this commission to root its work in love as a principal guide in its work, attending particularly to the ways that we and our root traditions have understood and articulated love and how we have acted out of love. Isn't that lovely? Really, this is how we should do all our work as a religious community, rooted in love. So the charge is explicit in saying that the UUA board wants language for the principles that is brief, poetic, and explicitly anti-racist. The board also says that there is nothing sacred about the number of principles and sources. Seven is not a magic number. So January, 2023 may seem like it's far in the future. So why should we take so long to do this? Well, it's important to remember that this is an enormous task and a very sensitive one. The principles are our DNA. Any change to them requires a deep examination of the purposes, as well as building a huge amount of consensus. So the UUA process will continue to churn along and you can follow their work at the UUA website, aptly called uua.org. But there's another process that's underway in parallel. While the UUA does their work at the denominational level, individual churches are taking the initiative to adopt the eighth principle as part of the principles for their specific church. In fact, to date, more than 120 UU congregations have done this. So what does it mean to adopt the eighth principle at the local level, even before the UUA adopts it? When a congregation votes to add the eighth principle, it's an act of covenant amongst the members of that congregation. Remember, the principles are a covenant. This is a covenant to actively dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. So for that to happen here at First Unitarian, the Board of Trustees would have to vote to convene a con congregational meeting or add a vote on the eighth principle to a previously scheduled congregational meeting, and then the congregation would have to vote on it. So there's two ways to think about voting to adopt the eighth principle within this church. It can be a kickoff, propelling us into deeper work to live into our values, or it can be a sign of celebration that we've achieved a certain milestone on our path towards creating beloved community. Each way serves a purpose and each way has its issues. 
If we vote on the eighth principle as a kickoff, we need to be, be sure that we don't stop our anti-oppression work there. Stopping after a successful vote would be a kind of lip service, like putting up a Black Lives Matter sign and congratulating ourselves, we're done here. But if we use the eighth principle as a guiding light during our ongoing work, that's a good thing. We can say, hey, we voted to commit to this. It's one of our principles now, we have to do this. Now, if we wait until we achieve some kind of milestone in our anti-oppression work before holding the vote for the eighth principle, we might be waiting a long time. When exactly do we say that we're done with this work? I have some real talk here. We're never gonna be done with this work. There will always be new understandings of how oppression works. There will always be fresh challenges. We can never be complacent and say, nice work, everyone. Now we're totally woke. But perhaps waiting would create a deeper sense of urgency in our work together. I don't know. Whichever path we choose, and I don't have a strong opinion on that, the most important thing will be how we work together on this. The most important thing will be the quality of our process and the quality of our relationships, because that will drive where we end up. Now, the driver of quality of our process and the quality of our relationships is a funny thing. It'll be driven by our ability to tolerate discomfort. I guess getting comfortable with discomfort. Anti-racism work and anti-oppression work, it's so hard and it's slow and it's messy and it is uncomfortable. We will all screw it up at one point or another, all of us. And no one likes to screw it up, but when it happens, the future of our work will not depend on being perfect and never making a mistake, It'll depend on how we handle our mistakes. Will folks accept account accountability when challenged? Will folks doing the challenging do it in a way that is curious and compassionate? And once someone accepts accountability, accountability, will they be truly welcome back? This work can and does divide congregations sometimes. When folks push too hard, to go slower or faster, when they don't listen to each other and acknowledge the many ways of thinking about this, it can cause a rupture. The quality of our process and the quality of our relationships is so important in this work. We have to move through this together, all of us doing it. So let's talk more about discomfort. How might that show up in this work? Well, white folks who've spent some time examining the history of racism in this country know that feeling guilty is a common reaction. White people still benefit from the legacy of racism that this country was built on, whether they asked for that or not. And that is uncomfortable. It can cause guilt. It's also possible during this work to feel unsafe. There are some who think that anti-racism education should involve whacking people over the head. I think that only an emotional punch can get through. I don't agree with that approach. People don't stay in the work if it feels emotionally violent. I think instead of a whack, we can use a gentle bump that nudges people into greater awareness. Shame is another kind of discomfort. 
as we become more aware of things like microaggressions and improper language, we may look back at our actions or speech from earlier in our life and just cringe. There are things I've said and done that were not okay. And I've had to learn how to live with it. Shame is a poor foundation for growth. We sometimes have to accept that we did those things because we didn't know better and then move on, promising to do better. Well, I'm making the anti-racism work really sound like a good time, aren't I? <laughs> well, all these kinds of discomfort, how do we deal with it? We already know that we deal with discomfort, how we deal with discomfort from other situations that make us uncomfortable. If we're dealing with it in an unhealthy way, we might try to numb the discomfort with things that we numb ourselves with. So food or drinking or petty distractions. We might get angry when we experience discomfort. We may feel like we don't deserve to be made that to feel that discomfort and we'll lash out at the person who we blame for making us feel that way. Or we can just check out when things get uncomfortable. It's a sad pattern that I've seen during my ministry. The number of times that folks have withdrawn from the conversation as soon as there was the faintest whiff of the possibility of them being held accountable or made uncomfortable. So what do we do with discomfort? How do we develop a healthy response to discomfort? Well, one thing is that it is our relationships that carry us through this, the discomfort. If we know each other, if we want to know each other, if we care for each other as we do this work, we can carry each other through the discomfort. So as we move through this space, as we do the work of anti-racism, let's always consider our relationships. Are we acting in ways and speaking in ways that keep us in a healthy relationship with our sibling congregants? Or are we pushing them away? We must stay close and caring to succeed at this work as a congregation. And this is a huge topic, but we have to deal with discomfort on a physical level. This anti-racism work requires that we stay in tune with our bodies. That's not always accessible to folks. There's a lot more I can say about that, but I'm gonna stop it right there. What I want is I wanna encourage folks in this congregation to begin to educate themselves on the eighth principle. There's some easy ways to do that. Like I mentioned before, there's a lot of great information on the UUA website. And as much as I hate recommending Facebook for anything, there is a page called the Eighth Principle Learning Community that is moderated by Paula Cole Jones, the person who wrote the Eighth Principle. It's got some useful information on there. And most important, we can educate ourselves by talking to each other in this congregation and listening to each other, really listening. It's up to the congregation and the board to make the decision about whether to adopt the eighth principle for ourselves. It's in our hands as a congregation. But regardless of what the congregation decides about the eighth principle, Angela and Matt and I and the staff will continue our commitment to dismantling oppression wherever it shows up, whether in ourselves or in this church or in the larger community. The work goes on. <laughs>
May it be so and blessed be.